It's August 11th, 1980, in Akron, Ohio. Clouds blot out the sun, temporarily bringing an end to the relentless heat that's been tormenting the small town for two weeks. The threat of a storm means the sidewalks are almost empty and traffic's light. It's good news for Detective Larry Momchilov. It means he can navigate Akron's streets with relative ease, which is convenient because he's on his way to a particularly nasty crime scene. The first drops of rain start to fall. Before long, it's a full-on deluge. The wipers can barely clear the flood from the windshield. He leaves downtown behind and ascends the hill that'll take him to the exclusive neighborhood of Bath. It's where the men who make the big bucks working in Akron come to live, away from the rowdy bars and overcrowded apartment blocks. The cul-de-sac Detective Momchilov turns into is home to just four houses, all of them hidden behind tall bushes and wrought iron gates. Momchilov comes to a stop outside the largest house on Everest Circle. It's built in the colonial style, with exposed timber beams, evenly spaced windows, and painted wooden shutters. It's a far cry from the small two-bedroom home Momchilov currently lives in with his new bride. He gets out and runs to the doorway. The oversized porch provides cover from the heavy rain. There's a woman sitting on the step. Her face is white, and she looks like she might throw up at any moment. Momchilov figures she must be the one who found the body not so long ago. He nods to the cop who's taking her statement and makes his way into the house. There, right in front of him in the hallway, is the body of Dean Milo prominent businessman, well-known in the small community of Akron. Milo's lying on the floor by the bottom of the stairs. He's face down, his arms and legs splayed in the shape of a star. A blood-splattered foam cushion covers his head. Momchilov approaches the body and carefully lifts the cushion. The sight that greets him is sickening. There are two bullet holes in Milo's head. A lake of blood coats the wooden floorboards under his body. Upon closer inspection, Momchilov notices two things that puzzle him. First, there are swabs of cotton inside Milo's mouth. Is it some sort of gag? Had the killer tried to keep him quiet before shooting him? There's also a page lying next to him, just outside of the pool of blood. It's blank, apart from the Western Union logo at the top. Now, why would this be a part of a crime scene? Did whoever pulled the trigger pretend to be a messenger? Is this how they got Milo to open the door? Did Dean Milo unwittingly let his killer stroll right into his home? Momchilov leaves the body and walks around the house, trying to get a feel for the place. Now, in the master bedroom, Milo's wallet containing cash and a number of credit cards is sitting in plain sight on top of a chest of drawers. Momchilov goes back down to the hallway to Dean Milo's body. He forces himself to take in every little detail. To his expert eye, 
There doesn't appear to have been a struggle. There are two shell cases, but no murder weapon. Nothing looks like it's been taken from the house. Whoever killed Milo was no thief. So, why was the talented businessman, Dean Milo, gunned down in cold blood? It's a question the police struggle to find an answer to. In the weeks that follow, they uncover bad blood in the family, unhappy business associates, and even rumored connections to the mob. They need help. And that's where acclaimed private investigator Bill Deere comes in. It's a case that'll require all of Bill's tenacity and inventiveness. Can the man people call America's James Bond get to the bottom of the case, or will it prove to be the one that finally defeats him? Hi, I'm Mark Dodson, and welcome to Detectives Don't Sleep. Each week, we'll shadow the world's most remarkable sleuths, real detectives who worked extraordinary cases. This week, we're in Akron, Ohio, hot on the heels of a celebrated private investigator, Bill Deere. Bill has solved crimes in every corner of the United States, in Europe and beyond. He's a millionaire and one of the best PIs America has ever produced. He's used to a globe-trotting lifestyle, but his latest case is a little closer to home. When the body of Dean Milo, a prominent businessman, is found dead in his Ohio home, the local police department struggles to make a dent in the case. Bill Deere is called to assist. He quickly finds himself investigating a murder where half the county could be behind the smoking gun. From Noiser, this is a deadly business. And this is Detectives Don't Sleep. In the weeks following the discovery of Dean Milo's body, Mom Chaloff and his colleagues at the Summit County Sheriff's Department work the case around the clock. Mom Chaloff regularly goes home after midnight and is back at his desk before the sun rises. His dedication is unquestionable, but it's not getting him anywhere. The team interviews family members, neighbors, and business associates. One thing becomes clear through these discussions. Dean Milo was a ruthless son of a gun. Oh, sure, he was a brilliant businessman. After all, he took the Milo Beauty and Barber Corporation from a local mom-and-pop store to a $46 million industry. Like most tycoons, he didn't care whose toes he stepped on on his way to the top. And he made a series of decisions that didn't go down too well. So first, he fired his sales team and opened stores that sold his products at discount prices in order to undercut the competition. This led to arguments, threats, and cries of foul play from other business owners. But Milo was making too much money to care. His biggest decision came in 1979, the year before his murder. After a number of disputes about how the business was being run, Milo fired his brother and sister, Fred and Sophie. Well, a series of lawsuits and counter lawsuits followed, all of which were unresolved at the time of his death. And it seems that family issues weren't Milo's only problem. 
There are rumors that Milo was involved with the Cleveland mob. There might be some truth in that. After all, he was killed execution style. Nothing had been taken from his house, so robbery as a motive was way out of the question. And the precision of the kill pointed to an experienced gunman. We're talking a professional killer. I'm historian Ruth Goodman, host of Noise's newest podcast, The Curious History of Your Home. I spent my life investigating the hidden history of everyday objects. The vacuum cleaner in your cupboard, sleek and compact today. But when it was invented, it was literally powered by horses and took four to six people to operate. The minty fresh toothpaste by a sink. Well, if you lived in ancient Greece, you'd be washing your teeth with ground up bones and oyster shells. Double glazed windows. We owe those to a French king's odd fascination with oranges. The Curious History of Your Home explores the extraordinary in the ordinary. Listen to The Curious History of Your Home each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. From award-winning podcasters Noiser, The Curious History of Your Home. Okay, so there are family members who resent Milo for ousting them from their own business. There are rivals who see his leadership as underhanded and possible links to organized crime. But there's seemingly no way to narrow down the list of suspects. After the third week of getting nowhere, Momchalov trudges into the briefing room. There are heavy bags under his eyes, and his skin has that sallow complexion of someone who hasn't slept much recently. He stands at the front of the room and says what they're all thinking. I haven't met anybody yet who doesn't qualify as a suspect. Seems like everyone we talked to would have benefited, one way or another, from Dean Milo's death. While the investigation rumbles on, Milo's widow, Maggie, calls the police station regularly for updates, growing increasingly angry with the lack of momentum on the case. She begins to think that Maybe the officers in charge of the investigation aren't up to the task. Or maybe solving her husband's murder isn't their top priority. Either way, she can't take it much longer. Knowing her husband's killer is out there is making her nervous. What if they have a problem with the Milo family? What if killing Dean was only the beginning? Could she be next? Afraid of further bloodshed, she engages the services of a private investigator. She wants the best there is and doesn't care how much she has to pay. And so, four weeks to the day since the death of her husband, private investigator Bill Deere enters the frame. Maggie Milo asked for the best, and that's exactly what she gets. Okay, now, there aren't many private investigators in the world with a profile like Bill Deere. He's handsome, charming, witty, and theatrical. He's a millionaire with a penchant for tailored three-piece suits and expensive diamond rings. He's six feet three inches tall and wears a cropped mustache and a pair of horn-rimmed glasses. His exploits have taken him to Asia, Europe, and across the United States time and time again. He's been stabbed, shot at, and even had his throat cut but none of these things ever stopped him. 
As a result of his impressive track record, he's become something of a celebrity. He accepts invites to speak on U.S. talk shows and regularly fills column inches in publications like Playboy and the National Enquirer. Each time he appears on television, his office is inundated with calls from prospective clients. The call from Akron, Ohio, couldn't have come at a worse time. He's just spent the past few months chasing opium smugglers across the world, ending up in Bangkok. He is exhausted. He needs a break. Plan on spending some well-earned time at his Dallas home. And who wouldn't? I mean, there's imported Italian marble in the bathroom and 14 karat gold fittings throughout. An indoor swimming canal leads to a vast heated outdoor pool. And outside, there's tennis courts, stables, a helicopter landing pad, and even a private runway with his own private airplane. You can see how his classy appearance and glamorous lifestyle have earned him the moniker, America's James Bond. But despite his fatigue, he's cursed by his own natural curiosity. The mystery of Dean Milo's death is too intriguing for him to ignore. After some thought, he decides to take the case. He tells Maggie Milo that it'll cost her $5,000 for a week of his time. Knowing his reputation for getting to the bottom of seemingly unsolvable cases, she agrees. It's September 2nd, 1980. Bill stands out from the crowd as he exits the airport in Cleveland. Among the weary travelers, he looks like he stepped off a Hollywood movie set. He's wearing a blue three-piece suit and a pair of ostrich-skin boots. With his sunglasses perched on his nose, he scans the waiting cars and finds the one he needs. The police officer in the driver's seat knows Bill pretty well. They'd worked together on a missing persons case a while back. Formed a good relationship. Though he's not sure the other officers in Akron will welcome a famous P.I. with open arms, his involvement could undermine the public's perception of the police's competence. When Bill slips into the passenger seat, they shake hands and begin the 30-minute drive to Akron. On the way, the officer gives Bill some background information on the family, about Fred and Sophie being fired and Milo's day-to-day -day running of the company. He also tells Bill about the rumors of mob involvement. Bill knows all this already, but he's happy to let the officer jog his memory. The officer hands him the official police report and lets Bill read it in silence. He flicks through the pages and quickly spots a detail that casts doubt on the mob theory. Thanks to the shell casings found beside Milo's body, police knew that the killer used a 32 automatic. Now, that's a pretty unreliable gun want a trained killer would avoid at all costs. Could this mean that the rumors of mob involvement were bogus? Bill certainly hopes so. Doesn't like his chances of going up against the mafia. As they pull into the Milo Barber and Beauty Supply Corporation headquarters, Bill thanks his friend for the ride and gets out. At the start of an investigation, Bill likes to get to know the victim, their routine, 
how they operate, where they live, where they work. He hopes that searching through Milo's office will show him how the dead man lived and what might have cost someone to kill him. He strides towards the sprawling complex, knowing that his appearance here is bound to ruffle some feathers. At the reception, Bill's greeted by the business's comptroller. He's in temporary control of Milo Barber and Beauty Supply Corporation, while the legal wrangling of the ownership continues. Under Maggie's explicit instructions, the comptroller leads Bill to Milo's office and leaves him alone to search it. It's a big room. A couple of leather sofas are separated by a low coffee table. The walls are lined with bookcases filled with business books. Bill takes his time to survey the room. He pauses by a wall with dozens of framed pictures on it. Each one, Milo is the star of the show. There's no evidence of any other Milo siblings. It seems that when he fired Sophie and Fred, he eliminated any trace of them from his place of work. Bill moves to the desk and lowers himself into the comfortable office chair. The desk is uncluttered. There's a picture of Maggie Milo and their children and a stack of documents awaiting signatures. But that's about it. Bill searches through the desk drawers. There's a usual jumble of pens, staples, and writing pads. There's also something pretty interesting. From the bottom drawer, he pulls out a soft leather pouch. He opens the drawstrings and carefully empties the contents on top of the desk. Two diamonds tumble out, twinkling in the light that spills in from the windows. You know, Bill's worked cases involving jewelry before. And he knows that a pair of diamonds like these would cost around $10,000. Why would Milo leave the jewels in an unlocked desk drawer? Surely anyone could have walked right in and swiped them when Milo was away on a business trip. And if he has expensive gems here in an unguarded office, what else could he have? Is it possible that whoever killed Milo did it to steal his cache of jewels? Bill thinks it's time to visit Milo's home, see the scene of the crime with his own eyes. But <laughs> Bill's presence in this small community hasn't gone unnoticed. Half an hour later, Bill emerges from a cab on Milo's cul-de-sac. He walks up the tree-lined drive, but before he even reaches the door, a cop car pulls up and an officer gets out. He explains in a not-so-friendly tone that the Milo murder is an active case. The private detective needs police permission if he's to join the investigation. Bill's heard it all before, and he knows when to keep his mouth shut. Silently, he trudges towards the police car and gets in the back seat. A short while later, Bill sits in the Akron police station with the sheriff. Momchalov, the cop in charge of the investigation, is there too. The feeling in the room is tense. Bill explains that he's been hired to find the killer. A fact that doesn't go down too well with the cops. They see him as an outsider, an interference, and his reputation precedes him. 
They know he's friendly with the press. The investigation could do without the nationwide exposure that he will surely bring. But after four weeks with nothing to show for their work, the cops need all the help they can get. After some discussion, they agree to let him help with the case, as long as he agrees to share information. Bill happily accepts their offer. After all, he's not here to annoy anyone. He's here to solve a murder. Now, with the formalities out of the way, Bill's eager to get back on the streets. It's time to meet Milo's siblings. After all, they knew him better than anyone. They might be able to shed some light on what skeletons Milo had hidden in his closet, what enemies he had, and who would want him dead. Bill travels across the bridge from Akron to Bath. The dirty beer joints and jam-packed apartment villages all disappear, replaced instead by modern shopping centers, upmarket boutiques, and large houses. Bill pulls to the curb outside one such house. Milo's sister, Sophie, is clearly doing well for herself. Her house is huge, split over two levels and surrounded by a lush lawn and colorful flower beds. The driveway leads to a double-wide garage where two top-of-the-range Mercedes are parked. Bill makes a note of their plates and then climbs the steps that leads to the front door. He knocks loudly. The door opens. Bill is greeted by Sophie and her husband, who does most of the talking. Bill introduces himself and asks if he can come in to talk. To Bill's surprise, the husband says, no. He tells Bill that the family lawyer made it very clear that they shouldn't speak with the private detective. Bill's confused. I mean, sure, it was Milo's wife, Maggie, that officially hired him. But the money's coming from the Milo business. So technically, Sophie Milo is also paying for his services. Doesn't she want to help catch her brother's killer? Bill tries to convince him to talk but they refuse. When he pushes too far, the husband slams the door in his face. It's not quite the welcoming he was anticipating, but he's got other irons in the fire. A couple minutes later, he knocks on Fred, Milo's brother's door. His home is equally as large and imposing. When Fred answers, he keeps the screen door closed. Bill begins to introduce himself, but... Fred cuts him off. I know who you are, he says, and I can't talk with you. Now Bill becomes angry. He raises his voice and questions whether Fred even wants his brother's murderer caught at all. I want that very much, he replies. You have no idea how much, but I'm under a great deal of pressure. After that, Fred closes the door. Bill fights to keep his composure. He's stunned. Why is Milo's family refusing to talk to him? Do they have something to hide? Have Milo's brother and sister got something to do with his untimely death? Later that evening, Bill drives over to the house where Maggie's staying with her kids. He explains what happened earlier in the day, and Maggie listens with growing disbelief. When he finishes his story, 
She shakes her head and apologizes for their behavior. She's angry, but not surprised. After all, rather than be happy with the fortune that her husband made for him, the siblings filed lawsuits against him. Even Milo's mother was against his leadership. At the last Christmas party, she spent the whole night bad-mouthing her son to the other guests. In the end, Milo had her escorted off the premises. Bill files all that information away and moves on. He asks if Milo had any other enemies. Oh, plenty, Maggie says, but she singles out two in particular. The first is a man named Ray Sessick. Milo fired him because he found out Sessick was passing secret details to Fred and Sophie about how the business was being run. To trick him, Milo fed him false information. A couple of days later, the fake news got back to him. Milo knew it could only be one man. He got rid of Sessick as a result. Sessick fought tooth and nail to keep his job, but it didn't work. The other guy is called Tony Riddle. He quit because he thought Milo was passing him up for promotions he deserved. But Bill doesn't think either man has a motive to kill Milo. I mean, the dispute sounds serious, but enough to kill a man? Nah. Bill writes the name down, just in case they pop up again somewhere down the line. And then he turns his attention to Maggie. Bill asks Maggie about her marriage. She admits it was strained at times. She says that Milo was a good husband. They were still very much in love. Almost reluctantly, he asks if Milo ever cheated on her. She says that deep down, she knows Milo was faithful. She doesn't know why. She just does. Bill doesn't want to push the widow any further. He's got what he needs. For now. Well, almost. At the door, he asks if Maggie would consider putting up a reward for information that may lead to the arrest of Milo's murderer. It's a ploy that's helped on other cases Bill worked. She agrees and tells the private detective that she'll have the company lawyer circulate the advertisement in the morning papers. Bill has high hopes. After all, if 25 grand doesn't get people talking, he doesn't know what will. Now, the next morning, Bill visits Milo's neighborhood again. He knocks on every door in the cul-de-sac. But none of the neighbors have any information. He urges them to think harder. Someone must have heard a gunshot or saw an unfamiliar car. But his pleas fall on deaf ears. No one heard or saw anything out of the ordinary. Now he's frustrated. He returns to his hotel. As he strides in, the man behind the desk tells him he had a flurry of phone calls. He hands Bill a card with the details on it. In his room, Bill surveys the list. The receptionist was right. The $25,000 reward is clearly working. One number on the list appears 14 times. It belongs to a man named Glenn Gosden. He asks the private investigator to get in touch at his earliest convenience. And Bill does just that and arranges a meeting with Gosden later that day. At just after six in the evening, Bill walks through the doors of the Checkmate Lounge. 
pulsating, colorful lights illuminate the dingy room. On stage, a woman's dancing to a rock and roll song. An after-work crowd have gathered to watch the show. Bill ignores the gyrating woman and the beer-drinking locals. He walks over to the bar. He asks the barman where Gosden is, and he's directed to a table near the back of the room. When Bill approaches, Gosden stands to greet him. The two men engage in small talk before Gosden launches into his story. He claims that Milo was dealing drugs for the mob. That's what got him whacked. Bill's skeptical, to say the least. One of the first things cops check on a murder investigation is whether the victim was a drug user or dealer. In this case, Milo was neither. Bill tells Gosden this theory doesn't check out. He gets up to leave. But now Gosden is adamant. He tells Bill that Milo owned part of a mob restaurant downtown. Also, the cities where Milo set up stores were places with mafia connections. Gosden argues that the stores in question were fronts for Milo's shady dealings in the criminal underworld. Bill tells him he'll check it out. And if the information leads to something, Gosden will get his money. Bill emerges into the parking lot and considers what he's learned. It's not the first time Milo's name's been associated with an organized crime group. By all accounts, Milo grew his business from nothing to a nationwide success. And quickly, how would he finance such a rapid expansion? Did the mob have loaned him money? Had Milo reneged on the deal? Is that what got him killed? In the days that follow, Bill sits at a table in the offices of the Bank of Ohio. He's been given full access to Milo's financial records by the manager. There's nothing to indicate that Milo had ever borrowed money from an organized crime group. His credit was good. The bank had no reservations about lending him money because he always paid it back on time. And Milo's part ownership of the restaurant Gosden mentioned is also documented. If it was mob-owned, wouldn't Milo have been more secretive about his involvement? It seems Gosden is wrong on almost every detail. Bill sighs. Just like that, his only real lead vanishes. In desperation, he goes back to Maggie. The $25,000 reward didn't work like he'd hoped. After the initial flurry of calls, the phone just stopped ringing. He asks her to up the reward to 50000 She yearns to see her husband's killer caught, so agrees to the plan. Bill informs Momshalov about the increased reward. He told the police he would inform them of any developments and wants to keep his side of the bargain. That afternoon, the Summit County Sheriff's Department holds a press conference. Momchaloff announces to the waiting journalists that the reward money for information relating to Dean Milo's death had been doubled. There's an audible intake of breath. Bill knows that the news will be pushed far and wide. He hopes that it'll convince someone to come forward, someone with 
actual evidence. And boy, does it. A couple hours later, Bill and Momshloff sit in an office in the Summit County Sheriff's Department. The news of the reward doubling has barely hit the airwaves, but already they have someone who has information about Dean Milo's murder. Ray Lemon is 34 years old and is known in the bars of the town for his rambling views of peace and love. Today, though, he's all business. Lemon tells the detectives that he's been between jobs for a while now, knowing he was hard up for cash. His friend, Terry Lee King, let him stay on the couch in her living room. Terry Lee was a drug dealer and a user. She used to dance in the town's clubs in order to fund her addiction. So she knew some pretty shady characters. One day in early March, Terry Lee came to Lemon with a proposition. She told him she would give him $5,000 if he killed some rich dude. Lemon laughed thinking she was joking. However, Terry Lee wasn't smiling. In fact, she was deadly serious. Not wanting to upset her, Lemon told her he would think about it, hoping she would just forget it. But she didn't. Two weeks later, she brought it up again. This time, to show she meant business, she gave him a package. Inside was five grand and a gun. Seeing the gun made Lemon freak out, and he told her he wanted no part in the scheme. So she just shrugged and took the package back. She didn't mention the offer again until a few weeks ago when she told Lemon the deal was off the table. Huh. The rich dude in Akron was dead. Okay, now... Can Bill and Momchala believe Lemon's story? Or is this another fraud hoping to get his hands on 50 grand? If he is telling the truth, Terry Lee King could be the person who helps blow this whole case apart. Is Terry Lee the one who will lead Bill to Dean Milo's killer? Maybe. But first... He has to find her and then convince her to talk. And from what Lemons told him, that might prove to be the most difficult part of the investigation so far. Next time on Detectives Don't Sleep, Bill Deere is still on the hunt for Dean Milo's murderer. His pursuit takes him across the country where he comes into contact with a host of shady characters. And then, just as he's making a breakthrough, there's bad news. Fred and Sophie Milo assume control of the Milo Barber and Beauty Supply Corporation. They fire the private investigator. However, Bill's come too far to fail. He vows to see the case through to a successful conclusion. Only thing is, with a growing pool of suspects and dwindling resources, can Bill really get to the bottom of the murder of Dean Milo? Tune in to the exciting conclusion of The Deadly Business next time 
Our detectives don't sleep.